Happy Father's Day. Uh, secondly, thank you for hanging in there and getting here. I mean, there were like a thousand obstacles, including all of the logistical confusion about what time services were, where they were going to be, when they were going to be. So you deserve congratulations if you made it today at four o'clock inside. So let me just say to you, congratulations on figuring out when to be here. I'm sorry for the confusion. Um, we live in the Midwest and the weather forecast just is not reliable. And so even when we say Say on Friday, we think we're going to meet outside and then it changes and then it's not even raining after all, I don't think. So it just is what it is. Thanks for bearing with us in that. I really do appreciate it. Um, also, here's what I'm going to do. I know it's Father's Day, but I'm going to give a, um, we're going to do a thumbs up, thumbs down for women here. Okay. So um, even though it's Father's Day, women, this is your call. Are we okay with the temperature in the room right now? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm seeing some thumbs down. We're, oh no, this is going to be worse than I thought because it's mixed results. Are we basic? Okay. Do we want the fans to get turned down? No, we like the fans the way they are. Do we want the temperature turned down a little bit more? Yes? Okay. Um, can I ask maybe, um, who is, uh, J- Jason, can you, there's a thermometer thing right over there. Um, thermostat. That's sorry, my vocabulary is not awesome. Uh, I'm talking like a dad on Father's Day, right? There's a thermostat thing. I trust you, Jason. Maybe not notch it down one or two. All right, so that's what we're doing. Uh, here's what I want to ask you to do: is I want to ask you to turn with me, actually, to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Today we are starting uh, our sermon series in the book of First Thessalonians, or we're kind of getting ready to launch into that. I've been looking forward to it. For a while, but I want to ask you to turn with me to Acts 17, and I think the reason why will make sense in a minute. Um, I'm a fan of baseball, um, as some of you know, and if I could kind of steal an illustration from, uh, steal an illustration, there's something that happens every spring that's worth paying attention to. Every spring at spring training, future Hall of Famers, And brand new rookies line up side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and they get back to the basics together, right? Every spring training, future Hall of Famers and brand new rookies who are trying to figure out the game, they get back to the basics, they work on fielding ground balls and throwing to first base. Why? Because sometimes it's good to get back to the basics. And here in our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be kind of getting back to the basics of Christianity together. The book of 1 Thessalonians is a letter that was written by Paul and a team of missionaries he worked with. Uh, And perhaps it was the earliest letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. It was written during Paul's second missionary journey. So it's a book that was written from the mission field to a church that had just been planted several months earlier. And in this very early New Testament letter, one of the earliest uh, parts of the New Testament itself, uh, we get a picture of basic Christianity. Mission field Christianity. Christianity at its most basic level. And I'm not sharing it with you because I assume we're all rookies. Some of us perhaps are just considering the claims of Christ. Some of us perhaps are rookies and we're new to the Christian faith. Some of us perhaps have been following Jesus for many years and we're kind of veterans in the faith at this point. But just like in spring training. 
The book of 1 Thessalonians invites longtime veteran Christians and rookie Christians and those who are considering the claims of Christ to kind of line up shoulder to shoulder and get back to the basics of our faith, to get back to the basics of Christianity. We'll consider in this letter some of the basics of what it means kind of to be a basic Christian church. We're going to consider some of the basics of basic Christian mission, some of the basics of basic Christian love and relationships, some of the basic Christian ethics. Above all, this letter will teach us about basic Christian hope, the hope that is found in Jesus Christ himself. Next week, uh, Jason Mead will actually take us into most of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we consider basic Christian gratefulness. But today, in the book of Acts, as we prepare to dig into the letter of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to look at the account that we have, the historical account that we have in the book of Acts of how the gospel came to Thessalonica. How the gospel came to this city that the book of 1 Thessalonians is written to. And we're going to consider this question. How did the gospel get to Thessalonica? How did that church begin? Look with me if you would. We'll follow through the story that's here in Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 9. Look with me if you would beginning in verse 1. Now when they, and they here refers to Paul... And Silas, or Salvanus, as he's called in 1 Thessalonians, and also their ministry intern, Timothy, that they've recruited and brought with them on this journey. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Let's pause there for one moment before we press on. If we put a section heading over just verse 1 here, In Acts chapter 17, the section heading might say something like this. The gospel travels. The gospel travels. You see, in verse 1 of this account, we realize that this missionary team is taking the gospel on the road. They're going somewhere with the gospel message. They're traveling with it. Why? Why are they traveling through these places called Amphipolis and Apollonia? And why are they heading toward Thessalonica? These are cities. There's a map maybe that we can show on the screen behind me. These are all cities in a region called Macedonia uh, in the ancient world. They're part of modern day Greece. And as this missionary team is traveling through Macedonia, they're heading to the capital of Macedonia, which is the harbor city of Thessalonica. You can still visit this harbor city on the Aegean Sea today, although I think the pronunciation has changed a bit over the last 2,000 years, and now they call it Thessaloniki, which is either cooler or not cooler according to your judgment. But why are they going there? According to Acts chapter 17, this wasn't their plan. This missionary team had 
another strategic vision that they had set out to accomplish, another strategic journey that they were intending to go on, but they were prevented from going in the directions they wanted to go in. And they didn't know, perhaps for some amount of time, where they were supposed to go until, in a midnight vision, the Apostle Paul saw a vision of a Macedonian man pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Acts 16.9 What kind of help was needed in Macedonia? According to 2 Corinthians 8.2, there was, quote, extreme poverty in parts of Macedonia. And Paul's heart was always moved to help the material needs of the poor, but there was a kind of help that the Macedonians needed even more than material help. They needed the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. You see, at this point in history, about the year A.D. 49, about 15 years after Jesus Christ had risen from the grave, The message about Jesus' death and resurrection had not yet reached the region of Macedonia. Nobody had taken the gospel message to this region yet. And so this Macedonian vision that Paul had was inviting these missionaries to come and spread the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to people who had never heard it before. And I suppose that as we hear this little bit of history, there's probably a lot of us who are listening right now and we're thinking, you know, if I were alive in the first century and I knew that there were people and places who had not heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I mean, sign me up. I would be all in to help the gospel get to those places where the resurrection of Jesus had not yet been proclaimed. Or if other people needed support to get to those places where the gospel of Jesus had not yet been proclaimed, sign me up. I want, I would want the gospel to get there. And we think, if I were alive in the first century when some people had not yet even heard about Jesus, I'd want to help the message get there too. But, maybe we reason to ourselves, that was 2,000 years ago. Hasn't the gospel made it like everywhere at this point? Doesn't everybody already know about Jesus and the good news and the hope of his resurrection? And if that's our reasoning, I want to say this gently, but I want to say it clearly. If that's our reasoning that the world has been sufficiently reached with the hope of Jesus Christ today, if that's our reasoning, we are wrong. Consider just a few facts about our world today, nearly 2,000 years after Jesus rose from the grave. According to the International Mission Board today, There are more than 7,000 people groups, 7,000 ethno-linguistic groups who do not have a viable gospel witness among them. 
And of those 7,000 unreached people groups today, more than 3,000 of those unreached people groups are not even engaged by Christians who are trying to figure out a strategy to bring the gospel into their culture. Perhaps you wonder if these are all just little, tiny, unreached groups of people. Let me frame it for you in raw numbers. I think we have slides for this. There are probably about 7.8 billion people alive in the world today. These numbers are mind-boggling, so if that stretches your brain a little bit, I'm there with you. 7.8 billion is very hard for me to imagine, but here's... Here's what I'm saying. 3.2 billion people on this planet today live in unreached people groups. Defined according to the International Mission Board as as people groups where there are less than 2% evangelical Christian populations and no active church planting strategies. I don't even know how to quantify 3.2 billion people. But here's what I understand from that. That is a lot of people who do not understand the message of Jesus Christ and the hope that can be found in Him today. It's a lot of people who don't have access to the message of the gospel. In fact, according to the International Mission Board, an average of 155,473 people are dying every single day in our world without Christ. That's about three quarters of the population of Aurora passing away every single day in our world without Christ. And I share this simply to open our eyes to say that just as in Paul's day there were great material needs to be met around the world, there are great material needs to be met around the world. And as followers of Christ, we should care about the great material needs that there are to be met around the world. Listen, just as in the first century, it is still true today that many People need to hear the message about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And not only our neighbors who are passing away apart from Christ, but people in people groups around the world who have no neighbors who can tell them about the gospel. Listen. In Paul's day, the gospel needed to travel to reach more people with the hope of Christ. And listen, the gospel still needs to travel today to reach more people with the hope of Jesus Christ. In the churches that Paul planted, he didn't assume that everybody needed to pack up their bags and move to another place. In fact, most of the people in the churches that Paul planted stayed in the city they live in in order to represent the message of the gospel there in their home city. Uh, There's a historian named Rodney Stark who I think makes the point a little too strongly, but he makes an important point even if he makes it in too exaggerated of a way. What he says is that the Apostle Paul was not a very good evangelist. 
He didn't reach very many people with the gospel. But what the Apostle Paul did that changed the world is he trained churches to go and reach other people with the gospel. He probably makes that point in too exaggerated of a way. I wouldn't want to say that Paul wasn't a very good evangelist. But his point stands. In city after city, Paul planted churches and he he equipped churches full of believers who would represent the hope of Jesus to their neighbors. And in those churches, even though he didn't assume that most of the new believers would get up and pack up and move to other places like Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing, he did believe that those believers would care about the progress of the gospel in other places. Do we at least care about that? And he assumed that the believers in those local churches would at least pray for the advance of the gospel in far away places. Are we giving ourselves to at least praying about these things? And in some of those churches, in fact, in the Macedonian churches specifically, many of them would not only care and pray, but they would support and send people out from their local churches for the advance of the gospel. Listen, a couple years ago, we said here at Redeemer that one of the ways we want to continue to grow in maturity as a church is we said we wanted to grow toward maturity in being global minded. In caring about, in praying about, and investing in the global great commission of Jesus Christ and the global scope of what our Lord is doing around the world. We said that a couple years ago and then 2020 happened and some of our, some of our best made plans we couldn't follow through with. But I, I, I want to say after our elders meeting this past week, This remains a priority that we as leaders here in this church want to see us grow toward maturity in. And so as we consider how the gospel traveled in the first century, and as we consider the real needs in the world around us today, I want to challenge us to be a church that cares, a church that prays, A church that's ready to give and go for the sake of the global scope of the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see here in Acts 17 is that the Gospel travels. But let's keep reading because that was only verse 1 and this is feeling dangerous time-wise. Verse 2, And when Paul went in to that synagogue that was there in Thessalonica, as was his custom... And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Let's pause there for a moment. If we were to put a title over these verses, the title would sound something like this. The Gospel is explained. The Gospel which was traveling from one place to another didn't just kind of, you know, kind of send out vibes. It was explained to people city after city after city. The city of Thessalonica... This capital city of the Macedonian region was ethnically multicultural and it was religiously pluralistic. 
People in this city worshipped many different deities. Not only their traditional Greek gods, but also Roman gods. And somehow, at great cost, the people in Thessalonica had imported a massive temple and massive idols in order to enable people to worship Egyptian gods as well. And also, as Acts 17.2 reminds us, this Greek city included a synagogue for Jewish worship. It was a religiously pluralistic city. And the attitude in the city of Thessalonica was a little bit like the attitude of a large modern university. The more religious diversity, the better. How do you build a healthy church in a city that is religiously pluralistic like that? How do you spread the gospel when there are so many different religious options out there? I encountered this question most kind of personally, or I I should put it a different way. This question became real to me uh, during my college years when I spent a summer teaching English in Vietnam, a city where very few people are followers of Jesus Christ. And while I was teaching English in Hanoi, in Vietnam, I was teaching these high schoolers uh, who had grown up in a communist nation that minimized religion, and yet their grandparents had been Buddhists. And so if you ask them what their religious affiliation is, they would say Buddhist. But if you ask them what it means to be Buddhist, uh, they couldn't find an answer. They didn't even know. And I'm not saying that to make fun of them. This is just the cultural climate there in Hanoi. And I remember there in that city getting to know the students that I was teaching and I genuinely cared about them. I genuinely cared about their futures. And sometimes topics would turn into talking about religious issues. And I remember when it began to dawn on me that these kids' lives, in this life, as far as I could tell, would be much happier if I could teach them to become good Buddhists than if I could teach them to become Christians. Because to become a Christian in Hanoi at that time would have meant a great deal of opposition. It would have meant a great personal cost in their family, in their future careers, in their lives. And I began to wrestle with this question here in Hanoi, How do you share the gospel with kids who grew up in a communist regime that kind of inherently is opposed to religion, but who think they're kind of quasi sort of Buddhist, realizing that if they become Christians, it's going to cost them so much? What if we could just teach them morals? What if we could just teach them to be ethical people? What if we could just teach them skills for life so that they can help their nation improve? Wouldn't that make everybody happier? That's when these questions became real for me for the first time. And I won't tell you how I tried to share the gospel because I didn't do it very well. (laughs) But let's dig in and let's pay attention to how Paul shared the gospel in an ethnically multicultural and religiously pluralistic city. Just a few things I want to note here from verses 2 and 3 about how Paul shared the gospel in a pluralistic place. First of all, the gospel that 
Paul proclaimed was reasonable. He explained it in a way that people could understand. And he had explained it in a way that they could think it over. I think it's significant that Paul came back week after week to the synagogue. Giving them an opportunity to process the bombs he had dropped. The truth bombs that he had dropped the week before. Giving them an opportunity to think these things through. And coming back and picking up again a week later. This wasn't a high pressure sales pitch. Just trying to get people to pray a prayer today. This was a reasonable message. But not only was it a reasonable message. The gospel that Paul explained in this pluralistic place. Was a biblical message. Notice in verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And here's what's going to surprise some of you. He wasn't reasoning with them from the book of Luke, which hadn't been written yet. He wasn't reasoning with them from the book of Romans, which wasn't written yet. He was reasoning with them from the Old Testament Scriptures. From the teachings of Moses. From the book of Psalms, from the proclamations of Israel's prophets, he was reasoning with them from the Hebrew Bible. And he was daring, he had the audacity to say in a pluralistic city that the one true and living God has revealed himself in this book. I know you've got all kinds of other religious options out there, but this book, the Old Testament scriptures, it reveals the one true and living God's. And not only was this message reasonable and biblical, more specifically, this message that he was proclaiming to them was a Christ-centered message. Notice what he was explaining from the Old Testament Bible in verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This is the center of Scripture's story of redemption. The Bible tells us a massive story about the redemption of our world and of the redemption of sinful men and women around this world that we live in. It tells us a story of how we were all created in the very image of our Maker. It tells us the story of how we turned away from Him and threw ourselves into sin. And at the end of this story, there's a very happy ending of the restoration of all things and of life forevermore. But in between that beginning and the fall and that happy ending of the story of redemption that's told in the Scriptures, the blazing center of the story of redemption has to do with a Christ. It is to say, a Messiah King. A descendant of David on whose shoulders the increase of God's government and the increase of peace will have no end. It tells us the story of a Messiah King who would come and suffer and rise from the dead before bringing about that happy ending. It's a Christ-centered message. And notice what this isn't. It's not a works-centered message that Paul kept proclaiming to them. In the Greek world of Paul's day, there were any number of kind of self-improvement teachers available in the Greek world. Self-improvement teachers just like we have today, whether 
you kind of lean in the direction of self-improvement teachers like Oprah Winfrey or self-improvement teachers like Jordan Peterson or any other self-improvement teachers out there. There were all kinds of self-improvement teachers in the world that Paul was speaking into. But Paul's message was not Jesus is one of those self-improvement teachers. He's just got slightly better tips for making your marriage better. His message was rather a message that didn't center on us and our ability to fix things. It's centered on a Christ, a Messiah King, and His power and ability to change things. It was a Christ-centered message about the hope that's found in trusting in God's plan to redeem sinful men and women through a Christ who would die for our sins and rise again on the third day. But finally, it was a specific message that Paul proclaimed. It wasn't just a message that said, if you trust in God vaguely out there, you'll be all right. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And in this pluralistic city that Paul is preaching to, in this pluralistic city like Hanoi or like Aurora, in this pluralistic city, Paul dared to make the message of salvation and redemption as specific as this. This Christ whom I'm proclaiming to you is Jesus. He has a name. He was born at a specific point in time. He's not just a general idea. He's not just a generic hope. He's a specific human being who was born into our world as God's own Son. Who lived a perfect life and then died a sacrificial death for our sins. And then just as the Scriptures proclaimed... He rose again in triumph over the dead. And He will one day return to judge the living and the dead. So, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus whom I'm pro- who I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's the message of the Gospel that Paul explained. And that reasonable, biblical, Christ-centered, specific message about Jesus Christ is the same message of hope that's held out for us today. A message that invites us to turn to Him. To trust in Him. And so join our lives into the story of redemption that is proclaimed throughout the Scriptures. What happens when that Gospel is explained? Look with me at verse 4. And some of them, the story continues, some of them, this is speaking specifically about the Jews who would have been there in the synagogue, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Let's pause here for just a moment and recognize this. Let's recognize that the Gospel 
unites believers. The gospel unites believers. Notice that sweet little phrase at the beginning of verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and they joined. Listen, more than we typically realize as American Christians who are kind of wired to think individualistically about things, when we become believers, we are not only joined together with Jesus, we're joined together with God's people. We're joined together with the vast diversity of God's people, which is what is emphasized here in Acts 17.4. What begins with a few Jewish brothers and sisters becoming believers as a result of hearing the gospel message then spreads to some of the devout Greeks. You know, some of us like to talk about being colorblind. The Bible is not particularly culture blind at a minimum. It pays attention to the vast cultural diversity of the world that we live in. And the book of Acts especially is paying attention to the way that as the gospel goes into multicultural cities, the gospel has a way of reaching not only people from one ethnic or cultural background, but reaching people from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds and then joining them together, Jews and Greeks. And not only that... Luke, who authors the book of Acts, seems to smile as he adds this note, and not a few of the leading women in the city. You want to know what makes for a great church plant? A church plant with strong women ready to run. <laughs> That's how this church began in, in Thessalonica. It began with men and women. It began with Jews and Greeks being unified together being joined together through their faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not the only way some people respond when the message of the gospel is proclaimed, right? Look with me at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. By the way, let's just pause on that for a second. Certainly this doesn't mean every ethnically Jewish person, right? Paul himself is ethnically Jewish. Uh, Silas is from the church in Jerusalem, leading us to believe he's probably Jewish. Timothy is half Jewish and half Greek. He's from a multicultural household. It doesn't mean every Jewish person. And some of the Jewish people have already begun to join them. But some of the leading Jewish people in the city, perhaps we would say, were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. And attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find the missionary team, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. If we were to put a title over this last movement in this account in Acts chapter 17, the title might go something like this. The gospel continues. The gospel continues despite opposition. 
You see, while some receive the message of the Messiah King named Jesus and join themselves together with the Messiah's people, while some believe and join, others reject and oppose the message of the gospel. That's certainly part of what's going on both with these Jewish leaders and also the city authorities. Why are they all so upset? The reason that's named here in the passage goes something like this. These men have turned the world upside down by declaring that there's a different king named Jesus. Isn't that a fascinating charge against the witness of the gospel? This is a multi-ethnic city. There are a lot of subcultures within this city. Perhaps to the Jewish purists, part of what was turning the world upside down was that when these Christians came to town, they were encouraging Jewish people and Gentiles to eat meals together. This is one of the explosive issues in the book of Acts. People from different ethnic backgrounds, Jews and Greeks, fellowshipping together. Perhaps to the Greek speakers in the city of Thessalonica, the explosive thing was this subversive idea that there's another king. The people in Thessalonica had a special relationship with emperor or the Caesar in Rome. They didn't want to do anything to jeopardize that special relationship that their city had earned with their... They didn't want to do anything to jeopardize the trust that they had earned with Caesar. And now somebody else comes into town saying, yes, you should honor the emperor, but no, he's not supreme. Because there's another one who is supreme and more supreme than Caesar. There's another king. Jesus. And this subversive idea was frightening to those who were loyal to Caesar's party. Some of the paradox of what's going on there is captured well by John Stott, who describes the Christian message kind of like this. On the one hand, as Christian people, we are called to be conscientious and law-abiding citizens. We're not called to be revolutionaries, he says. But on the other hand, the kingship of Jesus has unavoidable political implications since, as his loyal subjects, we must refuse to give any ruler or ideology the supreme homage and total obedience which are due to him alone. In other words, to be a follower of Christ means we have a calling to honor the authorities in our city or in our state or in our nation. But as followers of Jesus, we have an allegiance above our allegiance to the civil authorities in our city or in our state or in our nation. And to the people in Thessalonica, whether they were from a Jewish background or a Greek background, they recognized this might shake things up in our subculture. And I want to pause here just long enough to ask this question. 
Are you aware of ways that your loyalty... I want to ask this question to Christians. Are you aware of ways that your loyalty to King Jesus above all has maybe shaken up your loyalty to your subculture? I know we're really quick. So like if you lean in a conservative direction, you're probably worried right now that I'm trying to convince people to become Democrats. That's not my goal. I'm trying to convince people to become loyal subjects of King Jesus. And if you're more progressive leaning, you might be worried that I'm trying to coddle people into becoming Republicans. That's not my goal either. I'm trying to persuade Christians to be loyal subjects of King Jesus above all. In such a way that our loyalty is not to the subculture that we're from or to the political party that we most closely identify with or even to our nation itself. We honor our nation just as the New Testament calls Christians to honor the emperor. But we do not give unqualified loyalty to our nation. We may faithfully participate as Republicans or as, Democrat, as Democrats here in this nation, but we will not give supreme loyalty to the Republican or the Democratic platform or ideologies. We give supreme authority to Jesus Christ and His kingdom, which is bigger than any political party in our nation. And so as loyal subjects of King Jesus... You may participate in kind of a conservative-leaning subculture, but are there ways that you've seen how the values of Jesus may be rubbed up against some of the things that your non-Christian conservative neighbors just take as true? Or on the other hand, if you lean in kind of a more socially progressive kind of direction, you may participate in American culture that way, but are you aware of ways that your allegiance to King Jesus kind of pulls you away from some of the things that your progressive neighbors who aren't Christians assume to be true? And if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you something really cool. You know, you probably know this by instinct. The left and the right are incredibly and even oppressively self-righteous these days, aren't they? It's exhausting to be conservative. It's exhausting to be progressive. It's hard to keep up with who you're supposed to be against all of the time. King Jesus invites you into a different kingdom. You may still vote like you grew up voting. You may still vote like you've voted for the last 20 years. But King Jesus invites you into something that is different. Something that is liberating. A loyalty to a king who is actually worthy of our loyalty. From now until forevermore. This kind of politically subversive stuff was turning the world upside down in the first century. It led to opposition. It got people's feathers all ruffled. It got people riled up even to the point of violence which shouldn't have been surprising to this missionary team. Why? Because Saul of Tarsus was there nodding with approval when people were violently opposing the way and killing Stephen the witness. Back in Acts chapter 6, he was there among them assuming that violence is the only way forward. And now here he is representing King Jesus himself, following the way, representing the truth of the gospel. And now others are presuming that the best way to keep their city safe 
is to oppose even to the extent of violence. To oppose anybody who is proclaiming that Jesus is king above and beyond any other loyalties. There was fierce opposition. Unfortunately, in this case, it seems to have landed not directly on Paul and Silas, but on Jason and some of the newly converted brothers there in that city. Just as opposition will sometimes face us and sometimes face those we love and care about. But in the face of this violent opposition, what happens? The gospel keeps Jesus told a parable about different kinds of soil. Told a parable about spreading the word, spreading the good news far and wide. And he tells this parable in such a way that sometimes the word, the gospel, the good news is spread into soil and Satan immediately steals that word away. It doesn't bear up and grow any good food. Sometimes that word, that message, that good news is sown on other kinds of soil and people immediately say, yes, that's good. But when tribulation comes, when opposition arrives, they wither and say, nah, I'm not following Jesus through opposition. Jesus warned in this famous parable that sometimes the good news gets sown into people's lives and they hear about Jesus and the freedom that's found in Him, but then the deceitfulness of riches and the desire of other things and the cares of the world will choke out the life of the words. But Jesus told us there's another possibility as well. Sometimes when we spread the good news about Jesus Christ, it lands on good soil. And you know what happens when it lands in good soil? It grows up. It sticks. And not only that, it bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. And here's the thing I want to tell you about what happened here in Thessalonica. Listen, I have no doubt that Our enemy, the devil, was actively at work opposing the progress of the gospel there. And I have no doubt that there were cares of this world, concerns about worldly possessions that would have sought to choke out the life of faith in believers' lives. I have no doubt that there was tribulation and persecution just like we read about here in Acts 17. And yet, you know what happened? Despite the opposition of the devil, despite the allurements of the world... And despite this opposition to the message of Jesus Christ, that soil took, the the seed took root in the soil of individuals' lives. And not only that, it grew up and it began to spread out. How do we know that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. After Paul leaves town, probably out of concern for the safety of Jason and the brothers there. He doesn't want them to suffer unnecessarily on his account. So after Paul and Silas and Timothy, their missionary team, leaves town for a little while, they write back to the brothers and sisters there, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church. The gospel worked. It joined people together. The roots went down and they withstood the persecution. 
to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And then the thanksgiving which includes this. The word, verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. The Gospel continues even despite fierce opposition. How did the Gospel get to Thessalonica? How did the church get planted in that multicultural and pluralistic city? It isn't very different than asking the question, how did the Gospel get to us? How has the Gospel come to you? It isn't very different than asking the question, how will the Gospel get out to all nations? By the power of the Spirit. The Gospel of Jesus, the Messiah King, crucified and risen for our sins according to the Scriptures, is spreading and taking root to the glory of God the Father. What a joy to have our lives invited into that great story today. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward. And I'd like to invite those who are going to play some music to come on up this way.